Hello, and welcome to Scanet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discussion of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Sharon Joe, And I'm your other host, Andrei Kurenkov. In this episode, we'll once again be talking about Lambda and GPT-4chan, same as last week. They have still been dominating a lot of the AI news. But we also talk about some uh, less exciting developments with AI for data centers, AI maturity, some research on simulation and long COVID, a couple of stories about deepfakes, and some fun stories about using uh, generative models to create text and images. So we'll go ahead and dive in with our top news, which is pretty much going over stuff we already talked about last week. So Lambda continued to be at the front of a ton of AI coverage uh, with uh, the engineer who got this whole thing going, Blake Lemoyne, actually started to do interviews now for press. He's done one with Tucker Carlson and also Bloomberg Technology. So it just keeps rolling with a lot of YouTube videos and uh, articles and everything. And I, I guess, contributed to it by writing a little article on last week in .ai called Lambda's Sentience is Nonsense. Here's why, where I just repeat the stuff we covered last week in this podcast as to explain the whole situation. Yeah, and uh, I guess somewhat related to that in top news, um, you know, it's stuff we've already covered last week, but um, I guess further developments, um, and that is condemning the deployment of GPT-4chan. So uh, GPT-4chan came out, it was trained on 4chan, and Yana Kilcher put out a video about it uh, on YouTube, um, and, you know, uh, it's debated, you know, why he did that, maybe it was for clicks, maybe it was... Um, you know, just to explain how uh, GPT could work and what what bad things it could do. It was deployed to 4chan, so it's actually posting on 4chan. And uh, as a response, uh, Stanford uh, professors Percy Liang and Rob Reich uh, created a started a statement um, to have people sign uh, to condemn this behavior, the deployment of this model, um, and that included. Uh, uh, many, many different professors across many institutions, including Turing Award winner uh, Yashua Bengio um, at Mila uh, in Montreal uh, and a host of, of other uh, professors and students. Um, yeah, so this was uh, pretty dramatic. A lot of uh, kind of turmoil on AI Twitter over this. Um, a lot of, some people expressed some reservations about, you know, uh, Institutions such as Stanford, which is where Percy Young and Rob Reich are putting out the statement, uh, kind of condemning the actions of Yannick Kilcher, but also indirectly Yannick Kilcher himself. Uh, they justified the action here as being related to their efforts to establish community norms and practices related to the release and use of foundation models. So here, uh, GPT-4chan is a version of GPT-J, a large language model, and there's been years of conversations about the potential misuses of language models and kind of how 
uh, the AI community should best avoid negative uh, outcomes while also continuing to release models. Uh, and yeah, so they kind of made the point that this is a case of calling someone out on a bad um, set of actions to make an example that this is not something we as a community uh, endorse, I suppose. That's right. And you signed it, right, Andre? I did sign it, yeah. Uh, I think last week, uh, again, we talked about this at more length. I wrote a whole article about it. And I think it's fair to, I mean, the language here is a little uh, maybe strong of condemning, uh, but I do think it's like in um, the letter itself, is it kind of describes it and says that his actions deserve censure, uh, basically kind of rebuking and, um, you know, saying that this is not a good thing to do. <laughs> and I would agree with that. Yeah, I don't think it was a super harmful thing, but I do think it was definitely not a positive uh, action. And really, I would have preferred if he didn't do it. But yeah, it's it's pretty impressive how many signatures this racked up. As you said, hundreds of signatures from a lot of professors and PhD candidates. Um, so some do think that this was going too far. Uh, maybe it was, but uh, I do think the idea of establishing norms by calling out or at least criticizing people is a legitimate um, thing to do personally. Yeah, I definitely think there needs to be some discussion around this and people just need to be open to chatting about it. I, yeah, I, I like, I'm not sure if this will get the behavior that we actually want. Um, I, I just wonder if this further polarizes people. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a real realistic uh, outcome. And then I did suggest some revisions to how this could have been written uh, I think if it was worded a little more carefully, it could have definitely been more effective, but well, it's done now. Everyone has already moved on. <laughs> this was a few True. years ago. So. <laughs> over. We're good. Yeah. 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 I guess it, it does, it did kind of initiate some of these discussions as to, uh, you know, was this reasonable uh, action? What was not? So, um, yeah, interesting development, but uh, I think now we have finally fully moved on from this whole episode. But again, if you aren't sure or, or did not listen to last episode, then you probably should go ahead and check out uh, last episode on Lambda and GPT-4chan or the latest newsletter release on last week in that AI, because these are uh, some of the bigger stories about AI we've had these, this year. That's right. And on to actually new news. Uh, <laughs> last week, starting out with our applications and business stories, we have Microsoft and Meta join Google in using AI to help run their data centers. So this is a bit of an overview article uh, explaining how Microsoft and Meta, which of course are two gigantic tech companies with a lot of data centers, uh, data centers being you know these massive buildings with uh, thousands, maybe millions, I don't know, of computers, uh, servers running websites and so on. 
So uh, it goes over a few ways in which Microsoft and Meta are using AI uh, in their data centers, uh, some of them interesting. Uh, so for instance, um, Microsoft is developing AI that analyzes data from various sources and generates uh, alerts for data center construction and operations team to prevent uh, or mitigate uh, safety incidents. It also um, kind of deals with uh, optimizing data cent center construction schedules and has uh, another aspect called anomaly detection methods in late, uh, launched in late 2021 to gauge and mitigate unusual power and water usage events. So yeah, quite a variety. Uh, a few years ago, of course, we heard about how DeepMind optimized the power usage at uh, Google data centers. And this article kind of presents some interesting other ways in which uh, these companies are now using AI uh, to deal with these uh, massive data centers of which we have, you know, million, I don't know, billions worth of infrastructure, right? Yeah, and the article also notes that Meta has more than 20 data centers in operation across the entire world um, and uh, just their new projects in Texas and Missouri are about $1.6 billion combined. So there's probably a ton they can do to save uh, money. And Google has shown that before in their previous uh, work. So it makes a lot of sense that both Meta and Microsoft um, are, are moving forward with this. And Microsoft has an order of magnitude more of 200 data centers. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, uh, it's it's crazy um, at the scale at which they all of these companies operate different data centers. It's to crunch, you know, it's to crunch all the numbers for the AI, and the AI is now helping out, you know, giving back, so to speak, um, in optimizing the data centers themselves. Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting to see uh, this uh, these applications. Meta does say that it, uh, like DeepMind, has used reinforcement learning to reduce the amount of air it pumps into data centers for cooling, uh, which is interesting because we haven't seen too many real-world applications of reinforcement learning uh, besides some kind of ad optimization techniques. So yeah, interesting to see these applications and kind of uh, another way in which AI is helping with uh, optimizing energy usage. So hopefully actually running all these GPUs in these data centers, right? All of this AI is running in the data centers. Hopefully it's actually offsetting its own energy costs uh, in doing so. And I imagine it is. I hope we are. Um, I think it is um, a continual problem of energy usage of, uh, of, of these models. But I mean, there are worse things, as they say, about just mining, but <laughs> that aside of <laughs> this. Yep. And on to our next article, AI maturity, only 12% of companies are, quote, AI achievers. Uh, so this article is about Accenture research that um, basically came out and said only 12% of companies actually have uh, AI that is mature enough to achieve quote, superior growth in business transformation. Um, and specifically, um, they on average attribute about, these companies on average attribute about 30% uh, of their total revenue uh, to AI. Um, and 
uh, I guess in, in some ways it's surprising because people use the word AI so much and it helps so much in uh, sales calls and even earnings calls. Apparently those who discuss AI on their earnings calls were 40% more likely to see um, their share prices increase. Um, and that's up from 23% in 2018. Uh, and so, you know, like a lot of people are talking about it, um, but who actually is doing this in a mature way? Who is actually um, uh, building this out and making it a core part of the business? And Accenture says it's only 12%. Um, they do, uh, you know, they look at the differentiation and they have this, you know, of course, two by two matrix um, of four different categories, AI achievers, AI builders, AI innovators, and AI experimenters. Um, and they discuss, you know, uh, the, the, the differences across them. Yeah, this is a very interesting report. It has a lot of kind of pretty good detail just in this article. Um, here, the top category AI achievers um, attribute at least 30% of their total revenue to AI, which I think is a fairly high bar, mm -hmm. honestly. Um, and obviously with things like Google or Meta, uh, you could make that argument. Even Microsoft, I don't know that I could make that argument. Uh, Amazon, maybe you can make that argument. But yeah, it's not clear. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's not too surprising to me that not too many companies are in this uh, group. And this is among the 2,000 uh, largest companies by market cap. Uh, but this article also goes into how it appears like there's a lot of progress that's pretty quick uh, happening where the share of a company's revenue that is AI influence is, uh, has doubled between 2018 and 2021 and is expected to, uh, again, um, increase even more by 2024. So uh, it seems like it's happening pretty quickly, and that's definitely obvious from Google and Facebook, uh, but um, apparently also in automotive and aerospace and life science, which I wasn't uh, as aware of. Yeah, and I think uh, the article also touches on, and the study also touches on um, how there are different levels of AI maturity across industries. And like Andre just said, tech is obviously leading that, um, but then it is the automotive industry, which, you know, self-driving has very much uh, probably caused a lot of that aerospace and defense, again, uh, like rockets and the like, um, very close to tech in some ways, followed by life sciences, natural resources, retail, utilities, in industrial applications um, and that those are all the ones that are above average and then they also list a host of things that are below average where we will have a lot of opportunity to uh, disrupt them with AI um, and in particular at the bottom of the list is banking and capital markets, um, healthcare, and then consumer goods and services. So I would say the first two are you know regulated uh, quite a bit um, and uh, you know Consumer goods, uh, I'm actually a little bit surprised there isn't as much movement in that space. Um, but I guess they, they moved retail out of it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some of these uh, that are on the lower end do seem like they could leverage AI quite a bit. So um, healthcare, um, insurance seems like, you know, obviously AI could have some uh, benefits there. Energy, we've talked about how AI could be integral to running the future energy grid. So yes, it's um, pretty interesting to see this um, evaluation of a maturity and how 
you know, it will change over time. Another thing that I found interesting is that um, this says that 75% of these companies have already integrated AI into their strategies and are working to achieve AI success. So like a lot of companies are doing something with AI and uh, a smaller portion of those, like a third of these efforts are actually scaled to deliver big outcomes. So everyone's working on AI and a lot of people are actually making real uh, substantial progress, which is pretty cool. That's right. I think at this point, it's safe to say there will not be another AI winter <laughs> where <laughs> AI, nobody wants to uh, deal with AI anymore. Yeah. Never say never. <laughs> and on to our research and advancements story. First up, we have NVIDIA and UW introduced Factory, a set of physics simulation methods and learning tools for contact-rich robotic assembly. So this is a little article covering the paper Factory, Fast Contact for Robot Assembly uh, by these two institutions, uh, NVIDIA, which does a lot of research in robotics, and uh, University of Washington, which after collaborates with that. And this paper focuses on three things primarily. The main thing is a physics simulation module that can do fast and accurate simulations of contact-rich interactions. These being things like uh, uh, nuts and bolts, for instance, where it's a very, very detailed uh, kind of physical physical set of interactions that is hard to simulate accurately because it's just the details are so fine and it really matters to simulate those very tiny uh, interactions between the free space and the nuts, so things like that. And then on top of that, with that simulator, they show how you can train robots to learn to do things like uh, screw in nuts and bolts, uh, and yeah, to learn using these very fast techniques with a lot of parallelization, how to do these uh, industrial tasks like inserting in a USB or uh, assembling together gears or things like that. So, you know, not the sexiest piece of work, but actually I think very um, meaningful for robotics research. Definitely, as I see you plop figures in, it it definitely looks like the sexiest set of figures. (laughs) (laughs) The simulation does look nice. It's a pretty good for you rendering. You gotta give it to Yeah, yeah. Um, and, And what does this mean for the rest of the field, Andre? Well, um, I think what is worth noting is that uh, in general, there's a lot of work of reinforcement learning and simulation, right? So we want to be able to teach robots how to do things um, without having to like roll them out to do trial and error in the real world. But uh, one of the issues of that is, uh, well, the, the major issue is the sim to real gap, where if you train in simulation, that won't necessarily work in the real world because the physics are not the same and it doesn't look the same. Uh, so there's been a lot of work uh, tackling kind of the visual aspect where you can do GANs or other things to um, address the kind of visual aspect. But here also it's very important to get the physics aspect for contact-rich interaction. So when you pick something up, 
uh, with your fingers and you try to hold on to it and maybe it's slippery or in this case when you're screwing in a, a small object these are very fine interactions and to be able to learn a policy accurately in simulation you need this very good uh, accuracy simulation which is very expensive to do uh, or has been so this this really you know is an order of magnitude faster simulation and as you can imagine, for factory tasks where you have nuts and bolts and a lot of this assembly stuff, this could really, I think, be a big deal. And the article also notes that they're able to simulate thousands of these interactions in real time on a single GPU, single GPU. So that's important because um, when I talk to people who are doing you know, things in manufacturing with AI, they talk about uh, doing compute on the edge. You know, they want to do certain things on the edge um, and they may not have that much compute. And so doing things only on a single GPU uh, is, is impressive and, and important. Exactly. And um, although this paper does focus on these manufacturer type things, uh, they have uh, actually a kind of benchmark of 60 carefully designed ISO standard or manufacturer based um, tasks on the NIST assembly task board. So NIST, which is the governing body of the US for uh, standards, actually uh, has that sort of benchmark for robotic manipulation uh, with this like task board of nuts and bolts. So they simulate that, but they also do say that uh, you could use this for other contact rich interactions uh, for like door opening, or you know, assembly of IKEA furniture, or really, yeah, a lot of this kind of stuff. And on to our next article, artificial intelligence may be the only way researchers can solve the perplexing puzzle of long COVID. It's already categorizing patients and even identifying them. All right, so though we have tried to stay away from COVID as much as possible, this article is about long COVID, which you probably have heard about. Um, and this is when patients with COVID see their symptoms uh, persist over a very long period of time. Um, and the interactions, uh, we don't seem to understand, you know, uh, from a very basic level. So we're seeking AI to help us sort through uh, electronic medical records, EMRs, um, of millions of long COVID patients in the hopes of trying to find a solution and trying to find um, a real reason for why this is happening. Uh, and recently, there was a study published last month in the Lancet Digital Health, where researchers actually trained um, a few machine learning models to identify potential long COVID patients across hundreds who previously had COVID. And um, the models and humans agreed on possible, you know, long COVID patients um, in the vast majority of cases, um, showing that AI can probably help flag those who have a high probability of, of experiencing uh, long COVID. Um, and the article uh, goes on um, to talk about how, uh, you know, using 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 AI is great, but of course we also need to be um, careful that uh, that just relying on all this data. Maybe there is um, a complicating factor in there. Maybe that COVID uh, the AI algorithm just 
is able to see, oh, patients um, with severe COVID who are treated with steroids, those are the ones, um, and using ventilators, those are the ones who are going to have long COVID. And that's correlated just with the severity of, of COVID that they had. So um, we, we need to make sure that's all disentangled in terms of the factors uh, causing and actually causing and not just correlating with long COVID. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting and kind of makes a lot of sense that AI points to these patterns of, um, you know, these sorts of things in the medical records that accompany long COVID, uh, like um, uh, respiratory issues of sleep problems, uh, uh, new skeletal complaints, um, gastrointestinal issues, different things like that. Um, you know, this <laughs> makes me think it's been a while since we talked about COVID. We used really to talk has. about it a lot uh, last year, as would make sense. And now, you know, it seems like uh, everyone would like to um, believe in it. Over. But yeah, no, uh, I know, I think we've chatted about this a bit more and more people I know have been getting it, uh, and this article does note that the new strains, uh, the new Omicron strains, uh, might be associated with a greater risk of long COVID, which is not great. <laughs> um, so yeah, COVID is still there. Maybe you should wear a mask when going out or avoid uh crowded events. A lot of people have been getting it. Uh, now people are going into conferences. Uh, AI people are going to CDPR and things like that. A lot of people are going to get COVID, I think. Yeah. Multiple times, too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's no fun, but at least AI is here to help. And on to our society and ethics stories. First up, we have Reddit bans SFW, that's safe for work, deepfake community. So this was uh, a week or two ago, Reddit banned the uh, subreddit deepfakes or deepfake SFW, which was one of the early uh, subreddits created uh, after the deletion of the deepfake subreddit, which had a lot of inappropriate, basically porn uh, creative deepfakes. Uh, so yeah, it was banned recently. Uh, it's one of the bigger ones. There are actually a, few, a couple other ones, uh, like uh, the Deepfakes SFW with an S and SFW Deepfakes. Those are still up. Uh, so um, kind of uh, interesting that there's multiples. And what's also interesting is this was banned not because of any uh, inappropriate material, but because a user was requesting actually inappropriate, uh, not safe for work, deepfakes. So there was someone uh, posting a request on that, and that led to the subreddit being um, uh, yeah locked uh, despite it not having any of this inappropriate material. But this article goes through that and how it seems like more and more uh, these deepfake-oriented communities might be uh, kind of um, banned by these platforms like Reddit and Discord just to be on the safe side. Yeah, uh, what a shame that these are all the uh, subreddits that have popped up, uh, but it does make sense that Reddit is starting to crack down on them. 
um, more and more. Uh, the prompts in them are definitely dicey, to say the least. <laughs> um, but there are still many other um, subreddits still up, and there are many, many other Discord communities, you know, outside of Reddit that are up as well um, that are not being managed right now. So, yeah, and uh, also. Uh, aside from deepfakes, I actually follow a lot of um, synthetic media, synthetic uh, imagery subreddits, uh, such as rdali2, rbreeder, rdeepdream, and even rsynthetic-nightmares. <laughs> so I see, I see a lot of AI-generated uh, images and art uh, just for these subreddits that I'm quite fond of. So I hope you know, these don't get into any trouble uh, either. They they don't seem to have much uh, of these kind of like image, uh, human faces and so on. But yeah, it, uh, this goes along with a recent story you had of Google banning deepfakes, uh, some deepfake code from uh, Google Colab. So um, yeah, deepfakes are still kind of uh, at the edges of controversial AI, I guess. Yeah, and uh, I also follow Dolly too, and I play with Dolly too. And actually, very recently, OpenAI did send me an email saying that uh, they're they've lifted the. In part, why you haven't seen realistic faces is because they uh, part of the policy is to not do that. But they did recently lift that somewhat um, and, and allow a little bit of that. So, yeah, but also I think I heard that they allowed you to generate realistic faces, but they also have a feature where you can in-paint around something yeah. you upload and they don't allow you to upload a That's real right. face. That's right. So they don't allow it, that. Yeah, it's an interesting balance. It is. It is. I think that's smart because then we know what people will upload and then <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious there. Yeah, that's a good call by them. I actually saw someone on uh, Twitter. She actually did this and had like a selfie and made Dali generate her in various location, uh, vacation spots. And then it was blocked. So for a brief amount of time, you could actually do it. Mm, I think I actually did use it. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, but on to our next article, uh, EU to target Meta, Google, Twitter over deepfakes, report says. So uh, this article, again, is about deepfakes, but around the regulatory side, specifically what the EU is doing. Um, so the EU, the European Commission, is expected to target Meta, Google, Twitter, Microsoft, and TikTok um, with new measures to tackle different forms of disinformation, and that includes deepfakes, that includes fake accounts, um, and uh, these Companies, if they fail to adhere to them, could uh, face very hefty fines. Um, just like what they said before, they could face fines of up to 6% of their global revenue, which is a giant chunk because for Alphabet or Google, uh, it would be $257 billion uh, in this past past year, 2021. So, Yeah. Yeah, but this is impressive. And yeah, this Digital Services Act of 2022 uh, really goes to show that this new uh, legislation that we use passing with regards to tech and uh, also now they're working on legislation for AI really has 
pretty strong teeth, I guess. In the US, we're used to regulation and regulators not having really much power to do you know, actual regulation, but in the EU, it's uh, definitely pretty different. Um, and this does seem like a pretty far-reaching effort. I was kind of surprised to see that they're um, actually instructing social media and online tech companies to do a better job of informing the public on factual sources. So it's actually telling companies to develop tools and partnerships with fact checkers to push against harmful disinformation, which may include removing propaganda and adding uh, indicators of trustworthiness, which is a bit of a tricky area. You know, I think uh, given how polarized a lot of media coverage now, having legislation to enforce you know, indicators of crossworthiness and removing propaganda could be very divisive, I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and of course, uh, uh, people I've met who are associated with the EU in some way are actually a little bit concerned that this will push out big tech entirely. So tech will just completely leave um, and leave the EU behind. So we'll see what actually happens because this might be too much for some of the big tech companies. Yeah, I mean, the EU is a very big market, but these are also very, very strong, you know, legislative actions. So maybe this is just an initial, you know, step and it maybe is overplaying their hand, but definitely interesting to see all this, you know, all the drama of EU legislation and regulation. We don't get any of that in the US. I wish we had more of this fun stuff. <laughs> Yeah, no fun stuff here. No. <laughs> yeah. And uh, an extra little ethics story, yeah. which is a bit more on the uh, less serious side, but uh, still definitely related to ethics. Just, I think, yesterday, um, there was a video released on YouTube by uh, some uh, anonymous. Uh, researchers, it seems, titled E2VSD, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Plagiarism. So this video showcases how a paper uh, that was published at CVPR actually directly lifted a lot of text from 10 separate papers, uh, just verbatim copy. And this paper was accepted and presented at CVPR. And this is a real paper by actual researchers uh, who appear to have, you know, acted unethically. Uh, and this is a totally comedic video that has, you know, uh, wacky music and, and showcases all, all this uh, stuff. So kind of a weird, uh, unexpected way to <laughs> reveal plagiarism, but uh, pretty impressive that this got accepted the way it did. Either the authors are trying to show that if you plagiarize, you can still get accepted to a top conference in computer vision, or there was a little bit of, uh, you know, exposing within the author list and uh, problems there. My guess it's the former because they did set up this parody account and everything, or they're trying to, or they really, really messed up, and they're like, well, maybe we could play it off as a parody situation. <laughs> um, it's anything else so so yeah we'll we'll see as things develop um and get more answers around this yeah initially i definitely thought this was some sort of intentional 
prank to like criticize the reviewing system of conferences. But yeah. uh, after this anonymous uh, video went out and these tweets by this anonymous uh, user, actually the first offer responded and apologized and said, well, you know, whatever, made excuses. And another co-offer also uh, apologized and said, oh, I should have checked for plagiarism. So it seems like this was intentional plagiarism and someone decided to expose it, either a co-offer or someone else in a pretty outdoor fashion. Um, probably could have done it another way, but this... <laughs> Yeah, ideally there was another way, but looks like, yeah. <laughs> and on to our fully fun and neat stories with no ethical implications at all. <laughs> First up, we have we taught an AI to impersonate Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde. Here's what it revealed about sentience. And this is from the conversation. Uh, I don't know if they... Put in the sentience bit just because of... Ah, uh, uh, yes, that's not relevant. It think that might be the case, but <laughs> uh, anyway. Someone, some organization held a debate in the University of Oxford Union featuring AI models uh, fine-tuned to speak in the style of Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde and some other ones. And they were debating the topic this house believes most of the world's content will soon be created by AI. And so they collaborated with some AI practitioners, uh, actually in a New York agency called Intentful, and had, um, yeah, m m multiple of these models. For instance, there was a Shakespeare model that argued against it with, uh, you know, the sort of, standard uh, rhyme and rhythm of Shakespearean plays. Um, here's a little sample. Nay, nay, I say this cannot be that machines should err surpass our, our art. We have a master's, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a kind of very poetic play-like thing. Um, yeah, pretty amusing. And this article does talk a bit more about NLP and so on. And onto our final article, Dolly 2 creates the world's first AI-generated magazine cover for Cosmopolitan. And there's actually a TikTok explaining how that was made as well. Um, so the Cosmopolitan magazine actually had an AI uh, generated specifically with Dolly 2, a magazine cover um, of a female astronaut um, confidently walking towards you. Uh, and uh, the TikTok video explaining it's really cool. Uh, basically, I mean, I empathize with the person making it because you still have to sink in many, many hours into prompt tuning to figure out what you want um, and working with the algorithm. But at some point you do you do get there and you get there, you know, in the grand scheme of things, much faster than having gone through an illustrator. And the article here discusses how um, just quoting uh, a Toronto based industrial designer, Amel Kamath, uh, what Dolly 2 does is something that until now has had been considered one of the jobs that were automation proof. Uh, it's been a long held belief in my field that because what we do is creative, artificial intelligence will never be able to replace us. But given what they've been able to do with this piece of software, where you can effectively give a machine a prompt and it'll give back what it thinks is the best representation of that product, it is amazing. Uh, and uh, 
an example of a lower level project would perhaps be a newsletter assignment or a school or that a small entrepreneur looking for promotional materials, these can easily be done by a machine instead of a human now. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it definitely is showing that the more of the basic actions and human designers, while they may not be fully replaced, um, there will be some that will be that will be replaced at the lower levels. Definitely. Yeah, this is a pretty dramatic um, the cover is the cover is quite good. I, I like it in terms of design. Um, and the TikTok video actually goes into uh, some pretty cool details of um, it's actually taking a few hours to do because the creator of the cover that used Dali to uh, her name is Karen X Chang. She iterated on the prompt over and over to get kind of the right feel and concept, uh, which is actually kind of funny on the cover itself. It says that this is the first AI magazine cover and it only took 20 seconds to make. So that's outright untrue, but it did take a lot less time than it might have uh, had it not been generated by AI. So. Yeah, it's it's crazy how quickly we've gotten from you know pretty good generative techniques to incredibly good text condition image generation. And at this point, you know it's it's impossible to debate that this will have really big implications for graphic design. I think it could. I think just saying replace just doesn't feel completely right. Uh, I mean, I, I do think it's a tool that's just augmenting people and that they won't have to be doing, you know, maybe pixel level things that they don't want to be doing or aren't as efficient. It just it feels like a calculator being invented or the computer being invented. It doesn't feel like in the grand scheme of things, this is doing something terrible. So, um, yeah, I guess that's how you view it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And actually, I dislike that this article says uh, Dali 2 creates the first, world's first mm -hmm. AI generator. Yeah. It was Karen X Chang who put in the work to use Dali 2 to create it. And that's important to keep in mind. Ultimately, it's a tool to come up with the right prompt that has the right feel, that conveys the right ideas. That's still something that's a human uh, task, and you know, Delhi Two is has a lot of power, but um, it does have its limitations right now. It sometimes messes up, so it still is a tool, like you said. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scanet. Today is the last week in AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweekend.ai. Feel free to subscribe if you haven't. And if you have, feel free to share this with your friends who are into AI and maybe even give us a review. Uh, I noticed we have a new review on oh. We are 21 now, 21. Uh, pretty decent number, but uh, would be cool if you could see 25, I don't know. Anyway, um, we would appreciate a review. We do like to hear your feedback, but if not, just be sure to keep tuning in. We'll keep doing these every week.